I was given an insurance upfront that the Washington Post would do everything in their power to not name the whistleblower, but they were very concerned that anyone with a brain who Google's Enzyme Peak advisors Nielsen because of Lars Nielsen would find David Nielsen and make the short connection. And in the end, you know, I think that what they did was probably best. I know that David would have wanted them not to have named him and I did not want them to name him. If you look at the corruption in the world and in history, if you go through the whistleblower protection program's annual report and look at all the payouts that they have made every year and you look at what they did last year and the total amount and divide that by the, the, the number of people who got rewards, it is a small amount like the maximum size that that anyone got is not huge it's in the millions money is like at the top of the list sex and power are like there too and they said that that bailout had nothing to do with tithing dollars and that the monies came from desert management corporation which is a for-profit business which is not true is not money true. is like a such a corruptive influence and motivation for people and the Washington Post article decided to mention that I, I did have a stillborn child, that Rebecca had a stillborn child. And, and it was at 37 weeks, I think, and then she carried another two weeks so that she could deliver the child naturally. And, and that, that was very hard on me. It was very hard on her. She had actually asked me to resurrect, resurrect him, him from the dead, from the, dead. From the, dead. the day after we knew he died using a priesthood blessing. blessing. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode 610, Tithing Settlement Part 2, one-month follow-up on Lars Nielsen and the $124 billion LDS Church tax fraud story. Now, for those of you who may not know, Lars Nielsen authored a 74-page letter to the IRS director, making several claims about a non-profit 501c3 company called EPA, that is essentially a tax shelter for the LDS Church's tithing surpluses. Now, Lars got this information from a former EPA employee who was the whistleblower in this case. But when Tom and I spoke to Lars a month ago when this story first broke, Lars was very clear with us up front that we were not to discuss anything that might reveal the identity of that whistleblower, so we didn't. But the Washington Post did, and lo and behold, the whistleblower is Lars's brother, his twin brother, identical twin brother. And another Washington Post article came out just yesterday detailing the subsequent fallout that has occurred between Lars and his twin brother David as a result of this information going public. So today I'm going to talk to Lars about this fallout and we learn more about Lars and David's background, their family culture, their motivation for filing this whistleblower report in the first place, and the reasons why David wanted to keep it quiet while Lars wanted to share this information with the public. But before we get into that interview, I want to share with you a few snippets from fellow infant Tom, who wanted to be part of the interview today but wasn't able to make it. So Tom and I exchanged some voice messages leading up to this interview because Tom wanted to be sure that I asked Lars about something that was really troubling him. I saw this on a Mike Tannehill thread on Facebook like a week or so ago. Um, they were talking about the $100 billion and somebody brought up the fact, essentially criticism or allegation against Lars and David that their motives aren't pure. 
that their motives are financially, um, yeah, that their motives are financially or monetarily uh, focused. So that's my second question. And I don't, really don't know how to frame this question. So if I'm not able to show up uh, and you, everything works out to where you can ask this question, um, his motive, because, well, somebody linked an article to the IRS that um, if someone blows the whistle, if there's a whistleblower that, that uh, brings um, a violation or a company or something like that to the IRS's attention and they're able to find that there was uh, rule breakings or law breakings or whatever it was, that that whistleblower is entitled to a 30% reward. I don't know what that means, like 30%, uh, I'm assuming 30% of what the IRS would take, I'm assuming, but I don't know. Um, but it's hard, it was, it was in that thread, it was hard for people to, to really see. If we're, if we're in the $100 billion range is what they're talking about here, how is it that Lars or David or both um, didn't see that that reward was a part of the filing process and that that might potentially be um, something that's definitely motivating them. I didn't get that impression and I, I, I still don't get that impression from Lars, but I don't know Lars at all. I don't know, <laughs> I, I clearly don't know his brother, obviously. So I don't know if that's a motivational thing. And, but because the skeptical part of my brain is like, well, you're not going to give this guy you really don't know the benefit of the doubt that he's not financially motivated, are you? Fair enough, because I don't know. So then I sent a message back to Tom, which essentially said, oh yeah, I'll definitely ask him that. In fact, it came up in our pre-interview. There's there's something there. There, uh, you know, we'll talk about it. I think Lars will be open to talking about it. But, you know, to me, it's not really that big of an issue because the facts in that 74-page report are the facts. And, you know, like if, if the money motivates them to fabricate things, yeah, then that's an issue. But just money being a part of it, being a, a motivation, wouldn't be a big concern to me. It definitely doesn't incriminate them. You want to look at the facts. And then Tom responded with this. Okay, <clears throat> let, me, let me see if I get this right. So you don't necessarily see a problem, or you maybe not even necessarily, you don't see a problem with being financially motivated. I mean, I, I guess in a way this kind of, when I was hearing you talk about this, Glenn, like, I don't understand. Like, you don't even have a problem with Esther Hicks being financially motivated. I do. And the only reason why I do is because if you look at the corruption in the world and in history, money is like at the top of the list. Sex and power are like there too. But that's, that's the, you know, finishing the three pattern. Money, sex, power, that's, I mean, those are the, money is like a, such a corruptive influence and motivation for people. So if Lars and David are motivated to file this IRS complaint because they know, like, I, I'm just picturing in my head as I was reading through this thread with Mike Tannehill, trying to get a grasp of what they were 
essentially saying or communicating or where they're coming from. If Lars and David, let's say, so David's working for this Ensign Peaks or whatever, and then he's kind of, you know, confidentiality reasons, he's going to his brothers like, oh man, you should see how much money the church is sitting on. This is crazy. And then the both of them start looking into it by saying, well, dude, like if we file an IRS complaint, we could get 30%. Think about how much money we're talking about here. I mean, that... I don't understand how... <laughs> it blows my mind, Glenn, that you're like, that's not that big a deal, so what? I mean, it, do it doesn't change the facts or evidence. No, it doesn't. But it totally skews the what's driving what's the driving force behind it because instead of instead of Lars David being sort of these uh, uh, right doers you know like well we just we're pro transparency or whatever it does it casts a shadow over the message and that's unfortunate because I think their message and what they're doing is extremely important and like you said the facts and evidence should speak for itself that's why i don't want a shadow to be cast you know but here's the thing about shadows tom you know like i can i can make my hand look like a dog and be a shadow on the wall but it's not a real dog it's just a shadow of a i don't know <laughs> i my my you know i love tom and i hope i don't get his blood pressure up too high with any of this stuff. I asked him if I could share this. He said, yeah, you can share it, but just please make sure that l the listeners know that I'm not against Lars or David. And, and what I was really trying to do and what I was saying there was just make sure that that position was really well thought out um, and really, uh, you know, the, in this interview that I have with Lars, that we really go into it because we don't want the shadow of any potential bad motivation to ruin the message and and that's what i think i see a lot as i've seen people's response to this there's a lot of uh red herrings and, and a lot of smoke screens and a lot of distractions that get people away from the main issue here and so i hope that what you'll hear in this interview today with lars lars is very gracious very vulnerable very honest we talk about this in excruciating detail um, and so make up your own mind recognizing your own confirmation bias whether you're against the church or whether you're for the church or what, whatever your position is that's going to color the way that you interpret the information we address that a little bit anyway thank you so much again Lars for coming on you're welcome on anytime and listeners I hope that you enjoy this part two of Tithing Settlement, the follow-up with Lars Nielsen, and we'll get to it right now. All right. Well, Lars, thanks for coming back on. Glenn, thanks for having me. I appreciate so it. So I, I was looking at it. So today, uh, as we're recording, is January 17th. Um, the episode that we published uh, previously was published December 17th, so it's exactly one month. That's right. Even though yeah. we recorded like a week before we released it. And then there was another Washington Post article that came out that had a lot more information than, uh, than, than we had talked about previously, um, specifically about the, the role of the whistleblower. You know, when, when we first spoke, you wanted to keep the identity of the whistleblower very private. Um, so we didn't talk about it at all. E even when you and I talked um, before we recorded, you didn't tell me 
that it was your brother. That's right. <laughs> twin, twin brother, which right. that's, that's such a huge part of the story. And so today there's been another, or maybe it was yes, yesterday, last night, another Washington Post article came out that talked about how this has had an impact on your relationship with your brother. Um, so I, I, I wanted to bring you back on um, and just talk what's, what's been going on in your life the last month after this story hit. Um, you know, there's some things to talk about with your brother. There's been probably a lot of criticism that's come out, a lot of support that's come out that you've heard from. And, and the way I see it is that there's all this noise around this mm-hmm. issue that's really easy to get distracted with. And, and especially, you, 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 I'm sure, are, are very familiar with confirmation bias. Yeah, <laughs> that, of course. Every, sing, you know, every single human being has this confirmation bias where if we've made up our mind about something, then we see confirmation for that thing that we're certain about or you know, sure about everywhere, and we ignore the disconfirming evidence. And I, it's been interesting to, to see the way that different people react to this story and what it says about their own confirmation bias. And so you know, we've got all this noise, we've got all these distractions. I think it's still distracting from the main issue. And so I do want to talk about that main issue again as well. But um, so, sure. so how, how have things been going for you? What, what's the last month been like? Uh, it's been good in many ways, crazy in others. Um, overall, I'm very grateful to a lot of people who have extended a lot of support emotionally, um, even physically bringing things to help out. I had a washing machine that, that broke in the very middle of everything on that first week. And so I couldn't do my own laundry in my own basement. And so wow. I had a neighbor who helped me out. And so a lot of those types of things and help from Mormons and from non-Mormons, um, was very much appreciated. And so, and of course it was the holiday season right. and, uh, a lot of phone calls that normally would have been about keeping up relationships between families were kind of tainted by this other issue. And that made some of them more strained than they have been in previous years. And that was, that was hard, but also good, you know, if if you think about it. So um, it's been a typical Christmas season and a good start to the new year in some ways, but it's been hard in others. Um, I wrote down some of the things that you wrote, so I want to tick through them and make sure that we discuss them. Yeah. The first thing is about the identity of the whistleblower. I was given an assurance up front that the Washington Post would do everything in their power to not name the whistleblower. Mm. Of course, it is not against the law for a newspaper to name uh, a source yeah. or to name a source of a source. Uh, it would have been illegal. Uh, it would have been a felony for the federal government, any IRS employee to give the name of the whistleblower that can result in jail time, yeah. but it's not against the law for someone in the general public to act on that kind of information. Yeah. But they did give me an assurance that they wouldn't. And you saw probably the religion unplugged article that was written by Paul Gladder that broke that same night on December 16th uh, is when the electronic version came out and then the paper version came out the next morning The he did not mention David at all. He did mention me by name and their lawyers were very concerned that it about naming David. And I asked them, they, they who David's lawyers, uh, the lawyers for religion unplugged. The, okay from Paul Gladder's lawyer, and they decided that they would be able to publish it without naming him. Um, 
but they were very concerned that anyone with a brain who Google's Enzyme Peak advisors Nielsen because yeah. of Lars Nielsen right. would find David Nielsen and make the short connection. And they thought maybe it makes more sense from a reporting perspective to just make that connection obvious since it would yeah. be very obvious. But they decided not to, and I applaud them for that. The Washington Post was uh, resolved that they could publish an article without it, but I think that it might have been hard to have been a front page yeah. article unless they did name him. And I think they were also more concerned about looking like they hadn't done full reporting yeah. or that if they hadn't published that obvious connection. And in the end, you know, I think that what they did was probably best. Uh, I know that David wouldn't would have wanted them not to have named him and I did right. not want them to name him. I had these videos um, that obviously were in my name, but I hadn't planned on making those videos public at the same time that the Wall Street, I'm sorry, that the Washington Post published their article. Yeah. The purpose of those videos was to give them everything that they needed so that they could write a good article and also that if they you know, maybe didn't do quite the reporting that they should have or sensationalized something, then I would have my way of telling the story that I could immediately release. And in fact, I published the videos about a week before the Washington Post came out. I just didn't publicize the links to the right. videos. Yeah. And I, I, I did that intentionally. So I didn't think I actually needed to, but then once everything all came out and it became clear that David was going to be named, I decided to make it all public. Yeah. So, so David is your twin brother. Yeah. And did, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you as we're talking here. Are, are you a redhead? I, a little I bit. Just so a we've, bit. we've got kind of an Esau Jacob thing here uh, a little bit, right? Except for we're both a little bit redheads. You're both, both a little, little bit of a red. So, you, so you're both kind of Esau. Um, but, you know, maybe have you sold your birthright for uh, some a bowl of porridge here? Lars uh, is... Is that I'm willing to take that. Um, <laughs> so what's the, what's the story? Because the, 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 the article that came out today in the Washington Post is all about the way that, that this incident has divided the two of you who have been so close your entire life, lives. Right. And, and now you're not talking with each other. Um, talk, talk about that. And I want to be sensitive sure. to it because I I'm, I'm, know yeah. it's a painful thing. Well, Dave and I have uh, a, a very peculiar, very interesting, deep relationship that most people can't understand. I mean, if you're genetically yeah. the same as someone, you remember everything the same. Even when we get together at family reunions and talk, some siblings will recount a story a certain way, and David and I will look at each other and be like, no, no, no. But that's because our neurochemistry, our development, and you know, the chemicals that were going through our brains at the times that we had those memories means that we remember them more similarly than other siblings mm -hmm. might have remembered them. And it is fun to feel that special bond that somebody else really gets you all the way down to the core. And I think that Dave and I are fundamentally the same down to the core, but we have gotten to who we are and at different rates. And yeah. I think David will get to where I am in his own due time, but he had conditioning that I didn't have. And I had conditioning that he didn't. I, I did a PhD in organic chemistry at Harvard University. So all during that time, I had a tremendous amount of cognitive dissonance and a lot of patience from lab mates, postdocs, a really wonderful thesis advisor who really helped me 
apply my scientific thinking to all of my life without being so direct and affronting to the religious issues. Cause I was, I was trying to be Mormon and my patriarchal blessing warned me that I should avoid the institutions of med, including divinity schools. It says specifically. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, what, what a weird thing to mention in a patriarchal blessing. Like there is, if there was any chance that I would go to a divinity school, well, there's an interesting story about that. But, but, but wait, wait, could, for, for people who are listening to this, that might not be Mormon, could you explain really quickly what a patriarchal blessing is? And then, and then sure. Go so, you know, when you are 16 to 20 years old, typically sometimes people get it as early as 10 years old and they that might be a badge of honor but most people between 16 and 20 years old there's a man in the in the stake who often goes and interviews your parents and figures out everything about you and then talks <laughs> okay to without you. Citizen, just what is it <laughs> that's what happened in our case tom r stone who's our patriarch was very very close to my parents and knew yeah. everything about us and and anyways he pulls me in and gives me a blessing and of course the biggest concern that my parents had at the time was that i would become very secular i was very interested in science you saw from the article this morning, Dave and I did a lot of science competitions, Science Olympiad, Science Bowl in high school. And I'm just a very science-oriented person, always have been. And they were afraid that that, that kind of thinking might, might lead me down the wrong path. And so a significant portion of my patriarchal dead, uh, blessing is dedicated to that. And one thing that they said is, beware the philosophies of men and divinity schools. And I never thought that I would be interested in a divinity school. Well, I get to Harvard, my very first day, I get the address, I walk into the building and I look around and I see things, I'm like, this can't be it. It turns out that the building that is adjacent to the Harvard chemistry building, literally 20 feet away, you can, and they're all connected right with walkways. Yeah. So I walked in the wrong door the wrong way. And I was in Harvard Divinity School. Um, and I just realized I had walked into Satan's trap yeah. with my feet right. while trying to go to Harvard Chemistry Graduate School. And I just, a, I just want to say, because I, I, I was very unsatisfied with your explanation of what a patriarchal blessing is. <laughs> it's, 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 it's like you're a fortune telling. I mean, it, it's yeah. basically Mormon style fortune telling. Instead of getting your palm read, you have this blessing that tells you what's going to happen in your life. And it's like a pretty much a one-time thing that, that every Mormon has this patriarchal blessing that really is meaningful. Like, who am I? What's going to happen to me in my life? Okay. I'm using this as my own personal set of scriptures. And so your patriarchal blessing had this prophecy about, or, or this, this yeah, <laughs> uh, it was. caution yeah. about uh, avoiding a divinity school and you went right into it. So yeah. patriarchal blessings must me. be true is what you're saying. It, I, it, I had a very powerful, mind shocking experience, which would, coming out of BYU, I would, I, I knew that there were a lot of problems with Wait, isn't BYU a divinity school? There you go. That's an interesting That point. was probably the yeah. first one that you should have avoided. <laughs> should have avoided that divinity school for sure. Oh, well, anyways, I, I did walk into this one and it shook me to the core because I realized I'm going to have to make a choice. You see, my BYU experience was a very good one, but I just, I focused on the science and lab work and, and I really actually got a little disenchanted. I had a wonderful professor at BYU. His name is Stephen Fleming. And I even went to China with him and his children, or his family this last uh, year with my kids. And he has become disaffected from the Mormon church and has moved to Temple University. Mm. But you know, he really helped me to see things a little bit more appropriately, I would say, than what many other professors um, were espousing. And 
really was a bit of a wake-up call. Anyway, so when I get to, to Harvard, I was like, I need to really not compartmentalize so much. I need to shrug off some of the extreme conservatism of my parents, both um, spiritual conservatism as well as political conservatism. It was just right. too much. And I and Harvard is a very liberal and liberating place. And so, but I was ready to embrace all of that and see if it could turn me into the right kind of person, the person that I wanted to be more. And then I had this first day divinity experience and I thought I'm going to have to choose whether or not I'm going to double down. And I very in short order decided that I would, I was going to give Mormonism the full shot. Right. You, when you say full shot, do you mean like faithful shot or do you mean exactly. I'm going to treat Mormonism the same way that I would treat any other claim and, and I'm not going to, uh, take an apologetic approach to defending Mormonism any more than I would any other. Is that what you mean? Or you no, meant, you meant you, first. The, the opposite. You were yeah. just. Imagine that you got a, a so shot. In, 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 you said you were going to stop compartmentalizing, compartmentalizing, but actually you decided I'm going to build this compartment around Mormonism that's bulletproof. Yeah. I had decided okay. going to Harvard that I was going to let go of the compartmentalization and really understand myself and the religion and let truth just be the guide. Hmm. And then I had this experience uh, and, and then I said, no, 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 I better compartmentalize. I better compartmentalize. Yeah. I have yeah. got to dedicate myself to this. Mm -hmm. And this is the coming of a prophecy that will haunt me for all of eternity. If I do it wrong, I better take a, like a full syringe full of faith yeah. and use the full shot, not just like a part of it. And the way I had always looked at faith up to that point was if there is, uh, if there are two different theories and they cannot be discerned by evidence, it is okay to believe one theory over the other, um, because that's a it's a liberty, it's a choice. Mm -hmm. And if one of them seems to be less parsimonious than the other, or there might be a little bit of evidence in support of one and not in the other, it is okay to inject faith into mm -hmm. the one that's the underdog. If, as long as you're not really dismissing a lot of disconfirming evidence. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I'm going to give myself that full shot. And that turned out to be probably the biggest mistake of my life because it set the trajectory for everything else, right? And it meant that it would take another 10 years for me to fully realized that I shouldn't have compartmentalized further and just been fully honest and, and put the religion on the same footing as any other theory in terms of testability and consistency internally, externally, and, yeah. and dynamically over time. So you, I finally... You, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I, you, you had mentioned a while back about um, your family and how conservative your family was. And that was something that you needed to like soften at one point. But then right. at this point, you're like, oh no, I need to go full into the, that conservative view. But, but what, one of the things that I read in the, the article today about your great, great grandfather that went right. down to Mexico for polygamy. Yeah. And, and that was the story that you were told as, as a kid about what it means to be a righteous, valiant, Man, so that's part of the conditioning that both you and yeah. David received. Could you talk about that a little bit as well and, and then go back to where Yeah, we have a I lot of Mormon heritage on both sides of the family. My original name was Lars Peter Christian Nielsen, and that came from a different great-great-grandfather. Um, since then, I changed my name. I'm now Lars Polly Nielsen, and there's a little bit of a story there. It's not terribly interesting. Um, but 
but we have a strong, great patriarchal heritage. A lot of the Mormon women history has been completely disregarded. Yeah. Um, but the, the patriarchal heritage is strong and Edward Bunker was my great, great, great grandfather. And he was a very close personal friend of Brigham Young and did everything that he said and started communities and migrated from one to another and built them up and tried to make cotton farming and grape harvesting in Southern Utah, like this all under the direction of, of President Young. But at, there came a point where, and he was a very strong adherent of the polygamy doctrine and the Adam God theory. Mm wrote a lot about it, really believed it. And when the church eventually distanced itself from those doctrines, he felt that the church was going into apostasy and that the right thing for him to do was to, um, to, to move to Mexico where he could still be an adherent of the mainstream Mormon church, but because of his location, continue to practice and teach these doctrines. Eventually, the leaders of the Mormon church started to chastise him for keeping on with like the Adam God theory. And that was very troubling to him and he wouldn't renounce it. And he was eventually, um, a, a trial was held against him, but he wasn't convicted of excommunication because he had already had his calling and election made sure. Jeez, man, so there's so much <laughs> Mormon thread interwoven in this. Holy cow. Right. Uh, so he couldn't be excommunicated. But the one thing that could happen is that the leaders of the Mormon church could have him blood atone. And so that, <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, somebody needs to make like uh, early Mormonism, like Settlers of Catan type game where like my <laughs> my calling and election made sure is uh, ruled out by your blood atonement card. Yeah. And you, you know, yeah. like rock, paper, scissors. Yeah, so the, <laughs> a lot of this has been whitewashed and, and taken off the internet and people who have, who have, you know, at the beginning of the days of the internet, there was a lot about what Edward Bunker's life was, but now their family and everybody's kind of cleaned stuff up and tried to hide things. But the, the lore of it all is that Edward Bunker uh, died by blood atonement so that he could make it to the celestial kingdom for having apostatized from the Mormon church, even though he couldn't be excommunicated for apostasy because his calling had an election made sure. He is, he is buried in an unmarked grave in Colonia Morelos, Mexico, which is only 20 miles away from where I served my, Mex my mm. mission in Mexico. And, uh, but my, my father really revered him yeah. as an example of someone who was stalwart and dedicated to the faith. And to this day, my father believes in the Adam God doctrine and, and in quiet conversations will say, you know, we know our family is kind of preserving the truth. We don't have to live it openly. But so you're, you're like a hair's breadth away from becoming one of those fundamentalist Mormon no, families. No, that's, there, there's an interesting distinction here. My parents taught us that the right thing, in a way, Edward Bunker was a cautionary tale, you see. Mm. Living in the, you can do more good if you're reasonable and living in the mainstream church, church but privately, you mm. can know that there are doctrines that people are not worthy to hold. Yeah. That cannot be shared because the church isn't ready for it or the world isn't ready for it. Yeah. But our family have give, been given the opportunity and the charge by the president of the church to move to Mexico and to continue to live these things. Yeah. And now we need to continue to live these things, but just in our hearts for now. So, so you, were, you were conditioned very strongly to compartmentalize. That's right. 
So, so it, you know, I, I forgive you, Lars, <laughs> for making that decision in Harvard to, okay, I'm going to go ahead and compartmentalize again. Right. Um, you, you said that was the biggest mistake because then it took you 10 years to like unpack things. And that's kind of where I derailed you from where you were in the story for this little aside, if you want to pick up. Right. Well, I, I, I think that that overarching arc, there are many arcs in someone's life, but the arc yeah. that I think is most significant in my life is that I was given many opportunities along the way at BYU and that as a PhD student to, to fully reconcile myself and to become a whole person. Mm. And for fear and for faith and for wanting to fulfill a patriarchal blessing and not wanting to lose my family and my community that I had built up, I, I persisted at a couple of junction points that I really should have taken the left turn and I didn't. Uh, but then, you know, I, my 30s came along and I had a lot more time on my hands and I, I had three children, but I also had a steady job. And after putting them to bed, I had an hour every night where I could actually think and read and start to unpack who I was and the things that I had just put off because I was so busy. And that's when I decided that I needed to, to fully explore science and church history and everything that the brethren had ever said about evolution or whatever it was and made it about a two year journey and made sure that I did not listen to Mormon stories or anything that could possibly be misconstrued as anti-Mormon to any extent uh, so that I could be sure that in the end I applied the most rigorous and faithful set of tests. Yeah. And you know, I was very quiet about this with my family and with my wife and because I didn't want to hurt her. And if I turned out to all be true, I didn't want to create crisis of faith in other people. And, um, but that just Could, makes it very hard because you're alone. And, and also, your, your wife's family was quite connected. Right. right? My father-in-law <laughs> was the general counsel of Deseret Management Corporation at the time that Deseret Management Corporation facilitated the $600 million payment from EPA, which was illegal as a pass-through to beneficial financial group. And so he... So when, so when, you're, when you and David are doing the whistleblower on this stuff, it's not just your church. It's on your family members. That's like, right. And, and Henry B. Eyring as your wife's cousin... And he's the trustee, the <laughs> founding trustee of right. Enzyme Peak Advisors. So, you know, I'm getting a lot of like, should I really be doing this? Is the right, this the right thing to do? Like, how is this going to affect everyone? My children still have this man as my grand, as their grandfather. And right. Henry, you know, I, there, there are a lot of feelings and a lot of thoughts and nothing was reactionary here. Like, this is all I thought about. This is why I couldn't also work at the same time. I needed to make sure that I did a good job with this While you were preparing uh, complaint yeah. and that I was thinking through everything all the time and not yeah. going to make a fast decision about anything. Um, so, yeah, it was a really hard time. But at the beginning of my 30s, when I decided that I needed to, to be more honest and truthful about everything, um, it eventually led to my, it eventually led to the divorce, but there were some punctuated things that happened. The Washington Post article decided to mention that I, I did have a stillborn child, that yeah. Rebecca had a stillborn child. And, and it was at 37 weeks, I think, and then she carried another two weeks so that she could deliver the child naturally. And, mm. and that, that was very hard on me. It was very hard on her. She had actually asked me to resurrect him uh, from the dead uh, the day after using a priesthood blessing using a priesthood blessing and whoa and so we knew like i knew at that point that 
that postpartum depression was going to be very serious and that oh. she was as she was compartmentalizing my departure from faith she was she was coping with it by getting deeper into the faith and the doctrine and she really believed that he could be restored um and we talked about it in therapy for a year that really and, breaks my heart for her and 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 you both but uh why well, just just that i can feel it <laughs> like like as right. i'm imagining that that anguish of having the stillborn child and wanting it so desperately and coming to you and saying, could you perform, you know, flex your priesthood muscles and resurrect this baby? Wow. Well, and she knew that I had not been an advocate of the priesthood or the church or the patriarchy for, you know, about six months before Torsten died. And so what she, what she literally did, and I'm not trying to, to embarrass her now, you do a lot of things when you, when a child is died inside sure. of you and sure. it's, uh-huh. and it's still inside yeah. and you want it back and nobody knows. And this might be like a miracle that we never right. talk about, right. you know, and, uh, but that would be with her for her whole life. And she wanted wow. that kind of a consolation. And so look, when body chemistry gets hard and weird and there's a, a dead child inside of you, like you don't blame someone for having extreme thoughts. Of course. Right. But her, her thoughts were extreme and she did want me to resurrect him. And she, she did tell me that that was my Abrahamic test. She had some confirmation that my Abrahamic test was, am I going to abandon the, the apostate path that I was on, she quoted scripture to me. She, she quoted the proclamation of the family on the world and said, every child has the right to be born in the covenant with parents who honor their marital vows and covenants with full fidelity. Wow. It's me paraphrasing that. And she said, this is my opportunity to make a choice. And basically I interpreted that or it made me feel, or I chose to feel that what she was saying is I'm giving you an ultimatum you can either be a worthy father and resurrect the son or you can be an apostate. And that was probably the single hardest, most hurtful feeling that I'd ever had in my life up to that point. And I, I knew that we needed help. And so we, we went to therapy and we did it for a year and it, it, not just that, but everything about this issue and how the children were being raised and, you know, the the children being coached to pray at the dinner table with me sitting there and please bless dad that he'll be coming back to the church and repent, you know, really not just passive aggressivism, but just, it became too much for me. And I thought that it would rip the children's delicate psyches apart at that young age. They were, you know, four years old at the time, the oldest, and so I knew that a divorce had to happen so that we could have environments where the children could thrive and not see the parents attack each other indirectly through prayers, yeah. you know, that, that, that was not going to work. So, um, so which is the reason why I filed for divorce. Um, so, so we, 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 we started all of this by talking about your relationship with David and how being a, a twin genetic genetically identical but then you have different um experiences that condition your mind in one way or the other um, right let me bring it back 
back yeah. to him. You're right. Yeah. Um, the reason why I wanted to mention all that is because it was that moment when Torsten died and I felt judged and the, the marriage was falling apart where I needed my biggest support in the world, who was my twin brother. Yeah. And, and what happened was really amazing. He was such a tremendous support to me, but he was also getting deeper into the Mormon church. It was mm -hmm. exactly that time that he had joined Enzyme Peak Advisors. He was like the number 20 employee of the company. He believed that his calling in life was to do something global with the savings of the Mormon church and that maybe 30, 40, 50 years from now, he would be leading a trillion dollar effort mm -hmm. like Roger Clark would be. Um, yeah. And that... And so he was getting deeper into doctrine, deep discussions, didn't have all the cognitive bias from uh, the PhD and other things. Instead, during that time of his life, he was on Wall Street and every Thursday morning he would, you know, leave his house at 3 a.m. So he could go and be an officiator at the Manhattan Temple. Yeah. Um, and so he was he was officiating in the ordinance of the priesthood as a, like a 25 year old. Wow. Right. Um, because the church is smaller there. And you guys were hardcore, him. man like we, hardcore believers we we felt like we had i felt like i that i had to give the mormon church every opportunity to be right yeah and david wanted the church to be right believed that it was right didn't have any reason to oppose it and and so he just went all in totally deep yeah. no, there aren't wall streeters out there that spend you know 10 hours a day trading and then also our young men's presidents that night and also get up in the morning every week to do yeah. you know, officiation. And we and took not it doing blow <laughs> and not doing blow. That's right. Yeah, right. Um, and so we did take it very seriously. It was at this time when the divorce was happening, that David was getting deeper into the church and he just couldn't understand yeah. how I could be leaving something so beautiful. Especially then, when he, he knew your patriarchal blessing and what it had told you. And so he's like, look, Right. It's happening. It's all unraveling. Right. Did and that so, come up? Yes, it came up. We, we oh. talk, we, Lars, you're reinventing your spiritual experiences. You're trying to recast them using the theories of men. And oh, it was yeah, all yeah. right. Like tr me trying to help him understand who I was authentically and not feeling like I was getting very far, but him being patient enough to actually listen, even though he disagreed with everything, he listened to everything. And that I think is the most rare thing and sets David apart from all um, true believing Mormons is that he'd never, he never shut me out. It was hard, but he always listened and we always made some headway. Well, over the couple of years, he started to realize that there were problems in Enzyme Peak Advisors, that they were doing things that were not okay. They were not spending any money on charity at all, that they had amassed you know, $50 billion, $60 billion at that point. And he, and he started to see things in meetings where things were being told to one group of people that weren't being told to another group of people and putting it together. And he got to see some of the sl slideshows that were put together for the first presidency. And he looked at those and said, that's not right and made photocopies of them. And a lot of that stuff has been, was he having, and so, so he was he, the, his faith crisis was really initiated by the, the behavior that he was seeing in Ensign Peak. The yeah. He, I, I think that it's a combination of things and David's story is complicated like everyone's. And I'd like to think that some of the things that I told David really helped him to, to, compartmentalize the sciencey stuff less yeah and at 
at that by that point, much more had come out about the things that Joe Smith having 40 wives and, you know, yeah. uh, the church essays were coming out. And so he had a lot of m more things to deal with at once. And, but he also saw some incongruities and inconsistencies on the enzyme peak side yeah. that troubled him. Yeah. And he started asking questions and he had a reputation in the firm for being kind of contrary into the leadership, which was hurtful for Rob Neidegger, who was his boss because he had handpicked him. Rob Neidegger was his bishop when he was in New Jersey and while David was the young men's president and going to the temple and working on Wall Street as Wall Street, Rob Neidegger was also a Wall Streeter. And so David passed the test. He was, right. you know, going to be the most trustworthy person, but David also was a very critical thinker and that made it difficult when the church only wants followers in those mm -hmm. kinds of positions. No one ever questions. In any that, kind of position. Yeah. <laughs> right. So David's path was a very slow and gradual one, and he he allowed every apologetic argument to sink in and to, to give it time. He was a much more patient person than I was, and in some ways that makes him a, a much more noble person uh, because he, he, he gave Mormonism as fair a shot and as a patient a shot with as much information. I don't think there's probably anyone in the Mormon church who has more information on more topics generally than Dave does. And, and direct experience with, you know, how, how many people are at Ensign Peaks? You said like it's something 15 like, or... It's like 50 now. They were like- 5 50 or 15? 5 now. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. But that's yeah. still a small number of people. And, a... and even, even, even of those 50 people, how many really see everything that David saw? Oh, right now, the structure is very siloed there, and and you know half of the people are analysts who don't have full portfolio information. Right, yeah. You know, so it's really only you know a handful of people, and David is included because he started so early, and because he's been given a lot of special projects, and because he was focused on emerging markets. So he had a global perspective, whereas a lot of other people, you know, they're working only on you know domestic bonds, or they're only working on like large cap stocks or whatever. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's a very siloed place. So anyways, David's pro process and his journey was slower and more protracted. And he liked, I, th I think that he was influenced by my great, great, great grandfather in that he wanted to make slow but constant change, even if it wasn't mainstream within the firm. Mm. And that he felt that that was kind of his spiritual duty. Yeah. You know, and at some point, I think he might have abandoned the idea that it was a spiritual duty and more of a moral duty yeah. to get the church to actually spend its money on charity and yeah. to get it to not hide things like distributions that are made unlawfully, even though the church leadership might have thought, well, the, the cover up of that for greater good is no, no. Like David, David had a, a better moral compass than that and wanted to fight against that. But eventually it just became too hard. And that he wasn't going to ascend and take on, you know, the executive roles at Enzyme Peak for being a contrarian. And by then, his wife and kids, you know, they, she read all about year on polyg Lindsay Hanson Park's year of polygamy and got into things. And it became too hard for uh, for the family to to stay as adherent. And they they made some important decisions. And I, I am glad that they did, but David's livelihood was wrapped up in Enzyme Peak Advisors and he loved the work and he loved the people and he wanted them to just do the right thing more. 
and he felt like he could bring that kind of change from within. It would have been impossible for me to continue in the position. I just would have left. But then the truth wouldn't have been known. So in some ways, David did the role of sticking with it and and trying to change them from within and then also getting the information needed to share it with the IRS because he felt like that was the right thing to do. Yeah. But so, so the two, when did the two of you, when did he bring you this information? Say, you know what? I, I, I want to, I want to um, be the whistleblower. Right. How, How did that happen? Yeah. So he finished his employment and I didn't know, any details. So, oh, so this, um, in, this happened after. So yeah. Talk, talk, talk about how his employment came to an end. Cause that, that was in the, the article as well. Yeah. So the day after labor day, um, you know, he had resigned, you know, formally with a letter because he had said that, you know, he had asked for um, the ability to be with his family more who wasn't participating in the, in the church and going to church every Sunday. And he wanted to be a bigger support to his children, you know, soccer tournaments and things like that. And so didn't want to necessarily go, you know, as, as often to church and wanted to be upfront and clear about that. And, but, and but, but being an employee of Ensign Peak, it was required for him to have 100% it really activity, was. like attending every Sunday, being very active, not making any waves. I mean, he already I, had a reputation, you said, of being kind of a contrarian. Yeah, he he would constantly bring up the the problem that 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 they weren't spending anything mm. on anything religious, educational, or charitable, and they were yeah. kind of like, "David, you're a broken record on this." And he's like, "I should be a broken record on this. Everyone yeah. should be a broken record on this, right? Yeah. Go to the brethren. You have a meeting with them this month. You should ask them why are we not spending anything?" And they're like, "You can't ask that to the prophet. What are you thinking? You know?" Mm. But that that's kind of where Dave was. He he didn't want to. And, and, the, and the reason he had a problem with that is because he knew that it was illegal, what was happening. I think that he knew it was wrong, but he wasn't a master of the IRS tax code at that point. He hadn't consulted with whistleblower attorneys at that point. Um, but he, and and he why knew- was it wrong? Because I think, I think this, this is the, the point that, that shouldn't get missed in right. all of the noise that's around here. Why, why is what EPA was doing wrong. Like, how did David come to the recognition that it was wrong, whether he knew that it was illegal or not at the time? Right. But what was wrong about it? Right. So every 501c3 has a duty to perform religious, educational, or charitable works, or public safety works. Or There's like five different things that can qualify you as a 501c3. And if you don't do those things, then you're not an active organization, an active charitable organization. You have to, by law, be an active charitable organization yeah. in order to keep your tax-exempt status. That, and that's and, it. That's the, the keeping, setting up an organization that cannot be taxed under certain conditions. Right. And if those conditions aren't being met, which is what David saw, Right. Then why are you not paying taxes and contributing right. back to the country's well-being through taxes, whether you agree with where that money goes or not is a separate That's issue. Right. But, you know, the church, the church surely could have kept all their investment stuff inside yeah. of themselves, not in the separate 501c3. They could have given it to Goldman Sachs or whatever and said, do it. And they could have been taxed on that. Um, yeah. If not, if and and that would have been fine, and they could get yeah. as big as and they, they still want. have a lot of money. Like right. one of the one of the the quotes that I just I I laughed at because it was so absurd, was was a, a response from Mitt Romney, mm-hmm. who said, you know, like I, I I'm I'm proud that my church, you know, is saving money instead of saving money for a rainy day, it saved money for a rainy decade. Yeah. And it, it's I, I've seen that kind of response, and I I speculated on it when we last spoke that I 
Mm-hmm. A, a lot of Mormons would say, hey, look, yeah, we've got all this wealth. That's an indication that we're doing the right thing. Right. Well, yeah, but not in the right way. You know, fine. Mm-hmm. Have, have your, like, so it's only 60 billion because half of it's been taxed. Uh-huh. That's still, okay, so you've only got enough for a, a rainy half a decade. You know, right. <laughs> you're what? like, come on. Yeah. Why is it okay? Don't... Why is it okay to not follow, like, render under Caesar the, that right. which is Caesar's and follow the laws of the land? What people don't realize is that not all the money in Enzyme Peak Advisors is tithing surplus or investment returns from tithing surplus. Some of it is tax breaks, which is not their money. It's not the widow's might money. It's the American public's money because they paid their taxes on their behalf. You, Glenn, and every person who pays taxes gives $10 per person per year per taxpayer per year to Enzyme Peak Advisors. Most people in this country don't know that. Say that again. $10 $10 per taxpayer per year to Enzyme Peak Advisors what, in the form what of a tax mean? break. Oh, oh, because they're getting a tax break. Not, not right. that money's actually you're, being given to them, but what they're You're paying keeping. their taxes instead of them paying their own taxes. Yeah, I see. Yeah. And they have to pay taxes on it because they're not an active charitable organization. If yeah. they were active, then it, wouldn't, then it would be their money, but it's mm-hmm. not. Yeah. And so that's the rub here. And everyone is focused on, well, $100 billion, whether or not that's wrong to be that big. But that isn't the legal issue. The yeah. legal issue is, are you a charitable organization or not? Yeah. And you cannot piggyback on another charitable organization and say, well, we got our money from some other charitable organization, the church, and they do some good. They do some education through BYU. And so we can piggyback off of that and not have to actually do charity ourselves as a separate 501c3. Yeah. That's against the law. So there, there is stuff here that is being conflated by apologists, and they, they tend to do this always. It all comes down to whether or not you think the church is allowed to get that big. Well, guess what it can? Well, it can get that big, but it doesn't right. all come down to that. There yeah. are issues that the, the, are is, important here. Right. It, it, is it okay for it to be that big by any means? Not by any means. Right. If if it's, if it's stealing money, if it's cutting off the heads of people Laban style and taking their stuff, you know, is is that okay? Because that's basically what's happening where where they're not paying the taxes. And and really the way that I see it is because I don't know if the church really is guilty of this or not. I I don't Mm -hmm. know. But that, that your brother who was inside and saw things would say, hey, IRS, you ought to take a look at this and let the experts go through their documents and make a determination whether this is happening or not. That's right. Like, absolutely. Yeah. And he but, was right oh. to do that. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Yeah. And people question his motive. And what I would say about that is, you know, the if you go through the whistleblower protection program's annual report and look at all the payouts that they have made every year, and you look at what they did last year and the total amount and divide that by the, the, the number of people who got rewards, it is a small amount. Like the maximum size that, that anyone got is not huge. It's in the millions, mm-hmm. but, um, but it's not in the billions, right? The total of payout is something like 150 or 200 million yeah. from everything, from all the complaints. And so, it, there's not a precedent for David getting billions of dollars. Yeah. Right. What, what, um, what would you, what would, it, so it, let's, let's say that this happens, that the IRS investigate it. They do find that the church um, is guilty of uh, tax evasion. And they say, we're going to give you a fine of X billion dollars. Um, David gets a percentage of that. 
Yeah, the whistleblower program requires that there be a mandatory minimum of 15% mm. of the of whatever is collected. Yeah. Now, of that 15%, typically like 90% of all cases with the IRS are settled rather than litigated. Mm -hmm. And then when you when you settle, the total amount that you settle for is much less, usually an order of magnitude sure. yeah. less than what the actual charges are. Yeah. Um, and if there's a statute of limitations and blah, 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 who knows how, what the number is. It could be as high as 20 billion. It could be as low as, you know, 80 million. Yeah. You know, but it has to be some number in between in that range. So let's just take the, the low number, 80 million. Yeah. Um, then David would get 15% of that. Um, unless the, someone else blew the whistle on him before then, in which case he gets zero yeah. and he doesn't know whether or not anyone has shared anything and someone might have. Yeah. But then let's say 15% of 80, that's now what, uh, 20 billion or 20 million. Half of that has to go to your lawyers because they're going to represent you for seven years. Yeah. Right. Without right. you paying them by the hour at three yeah. to $500 an hour. So they, they take their cut, maybe 50%. So now David's down to, to 10 million. Then David would have to pay taxes on that, which would be at the highest rate because it's, this, that size of money. So then he was like 5 million in taxes. So then he would be left with 5 million left over. Right. Yeah. But what, what is the, and what is the cost of having to leave the career that you spent your entire life building up towards and not being able to make any money from trading foreign bonds ever again Yeah. for, you know, for the next 40 years, David can't make any money off of this. Is $5 million like re adequate recompense for that? Yeah, probably actually, given that, you know, on Wall Street, he could make a million dollars a year if he wanted to, but instead he went to go work for the Mormon church. Yeah. And now he can't work in any of those places. Yeah. So, so if, if we're saying, you know, speculating that maybe 5 million is what David would get, did you and him have an agreement that you helping him, you would get a cut of that? So we really didn't talk about it very much at all for the first couple of months that we were working on this we were just so focused on it and like David's a good guy and I felt like no matter what would happen you know it, it, he's gonna pay off his debts and he's gonna uh, which are more severe than mine and he's gonna not be able to work in his chosen industry so he has to like if there's any money left over that he could give me something to make my life a little bit more comfortable he would have done it and it would have mm -hmm. been fine but it wouldn't have been huge for me right mm -hmm. and and so it wasn't really that big of a deal. You know, we, we never got anything in writing. We talked to lawyers and, you know, it never, it never came up with them, you know? Uh, so I think that David would have been generous and would have shared, but I kind of forced his hand and, um, and said, look, you know, from the beginning that we were in this to, to tell the truth to the world, not just make money off of this, but he, uh, got advice from his lawyers saying, um, you really need to be careful. And if we're going to represent you for seven years, then you need to let us run the media show. Mm. And of course, what lawyers want is to do as little work as possible and get as much money as possible. And the best way to have that happen is for there not to be a media circus about it where they have to now defend themselves to the Mormon church or whatever, right? So it was clear to me, maybe not to Dave, but it was clear to me that no one would ever hear the story and that in, there would end up being a settlement. And in the settlement, there would be a non-disclosure agreement. 
and no one would know. Millions of, American, of, of, of Mormons wouldn't know, and hundreds of millions of American taxpayers who each pay $10 per right. taxpayer per month would never know. Yeah. And that was not acceptable to me. And yeah. I told David that it wasn't acceptable. And he felt like it wasn't my place to take, quote, his story yeah. and do anything with it at all. That would be a breach of trust. And I said, well, you know, from the beginning that that was the story. That was the hope. That was the reason why we were doing this. And you found out after you left, this gets to your, your earlier question, when yeah. you left your employment, you were afraid that it might look like you were terminated rather than, um, than you resigned. Yeah. And so he went and got uh, an employment attorney just to, to figure that out. And in the process, realized that there was another claim that was the whistleblower claim and uh -huh. then got whistleblower attorneys involved. And at that point, you know, we had been writing all of this stuff up. Wait, so I want to pause on that for a second. So, so at, at the time that he, I just want to get the sequence of events, right? He, his, his, his wife and his kids stopped going to church um, because they, they went through their own faith crisis, whatever that was, but he was still going to church because it was uh, required for his position. So he asked his managers Hey, would it be okay if I went to church maybe only once or twice a month? You know, right. something like that. If I, if I cut down my attendance because I want to spend time with my, my family. And they said, mm, no, actually, we think that would be too disruptive here. You probably better resign. And so he did. Uh, they, they gave him a month of pay. They gave him two months of, of insurance. Um, he went to, to an attorney to find out, okay, what, what else do I have here? And in the course of talking to the attorney, they said, well, you know, there is this potential whistleblower thing. How, yeah, how, I wasn't how in they... any of those early meetings with David's with lawyers. I was in a lot of the meetings yeah. later, but in the beginning, I, I wasn't privy to that. So I don't know the exact sequence, but that's yeah. basically right. He realized at some point and got really great advice. Look, if there is a, there is a federal um, layer of protections that comes from being a member of the IRS was world program. Yeah. You, the, the employer may not retaliate against you once you file um, with the IRS. Yeah. And so anyone take all the money out of it. It yeah. is ridiculous for anyone to, to, to not accept the federal government's protections from retaliation mm. Yeah. Again, the, the, the strongest, most formidable, most able to retaliate employer in the world is mm. the Mormon church. Mm. And they have the strengthening the church membership committee. And he lives in Salt Lake City, Utah. And yeah. his wife has a business that's a relationship-based business in Utah. Yeah. Like they, they need anti-retaliatory protection. And that is the real reason why David got excited about the whistleblower program. Mm. The money, like we just went through the math of it all. It would be nice if he was able to have something to make his life easier for the rest of his life, given that it's going to be very hard for him to have a finance career. But, I mean, that's secondary to yeah. his concern of protecting his family, his resources, his, his house, his children. And the best way to get an, uh, retaliation protection is from this IRS whistleblower program. Yeah. And the best way to, to, to use that is to let your lawyers run the show. Yeah. And so that's why so, David's so he position shifted. is very reasonable. So, so but, but it, he, it, it's reasonable. But when the two of you started working together after he had been let go and he was excited about the whistleblower stuff, he, he brought you into it. Maybe you volunteered I, I, because you had this experience with research and writing. Yeah. Um, so you started working on this together. And at the time, when you first started working on it together, you both wanted it to be something that was publicly known. 
because right. he because he had been in these meetings for years feeling like this is wrong what's going on people need to know this yep. but then when he talked with his attorneys and they said in order to to really maximize what we can get um in the case that uh that there is a a, a collection from from the uh ensign peaks to maximize that we need to keep it quiet and don't don't go public with it um uh, at which point he decided okay, let's keep this quiet. But you're like, no, I still want to go forward. This is what we've been doing the whole time. Right. The, the, I was in those meetings with those lawyers and okay. I know that their motivation was to minimize the work and maximize the return. And David's motivation was, I've got to protect my family. And mm -hmm. I was far more generous with them, you know, uh, than, than is typical. You know, the, the client usually only gives a certain cut and David wanted to give a much bigger cut to the lawyers but, so that but he could so have he also, extra protection. So he also, in, in, in pulling back from wanting it to go public, he also wanted to protect his wife and his kids and, and her business and just his own reputation living in Salt Lake. He didn't want to mm -hmm. be egged or worse. Right, <laughs> right. Happened, you know, like, Neighbors. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I, I don't has think it, that Has any of that happened, do you know, for, for him? Yeah. So I, I'm in Minnesota and my, and Dave and I are not on speaking terms right now, unfortunately. So a lot of the things that I hear about what's going in Salt Lake is secondhand, thirdhand. And so it's not yeah. appropriate to, to, to speculate on it here, but sure. um, I know it's been hard on them and that they're, they're taking it all in stride. So, and, and, and that what those things that are happening and it's hard, it's probably safe to assume that he's solely blaming you for that. I don't know if he's blaming me. I, there's a part of me deep down that hopes that he realizes that this was the only way, mm. that this was the thing that needed to be done. You know, that this way, everyone in the world could know about it, but he didn't disclose it to the world. I did, so the Mormon church can come after me. But they're not going to, because in order to come after someone like me, who didn't have an NDA in place, Mm. then they would have, then I would have had to say something that's not true. Mm. Good luck with that. Yeah. You search. I've said thousands of things on this. Yeah. I've written thousands of things. Good luck finding something that's not true. Mm. So they're not going to come after me. Uh, and they can't come after Dave because he has federal protections. There, there's no, there, people say online all the time, David violated his NDA. No, he did not. Right. You can't, Preparing a claim to the IRS whistleblower program, the federal government says that you can always tell the federal government whatever you want about your employer. And if the employer says that you're not allowed, that's why in all the contracts they say, if any part of this contract is deemed by a court to not be enforceable, then you know nothing else in the contract is necessarily unenforceable, right? They have all this language because they try to make it so that you feel like you can't talk to the government, but you have the right to talk to the yeah. government about anything that you think is fraudulent. But those, but those federal protections really don't do squat when you're talking about cultural uh, repercussions. Those and things are, that's true. But I think that, you know, the, the legal like battles. Like the, the social cost, the, you know, yeah, like all, yeah. all of that stuff that, they're, that, that they could be experiencing. They don't really have any recourse for, right. you know, if, if his wife's business just tanks because people, right. you know, it's a relationship-based business and they're like, oh, we're not going to do anything with you. Right. You can't really have federal protection with that, can you? No, but David knew that. We all yeah. know that. Okay. Yeah. So overall, I really think that David did the right thing 
according to his value system. Yeah. And his value system is a very good and ethical one. Yeah. I think that I did the right thing according to my value system. And right. that might make, that sets it up to look like one's value system might be better than the other. But based on our conditioning yeah. and our experiences, yeah. I really don't think that either of us have acted in a way that's inappropriate. And I don't right. think either of us are going to be punished or penalized legally uh, because of it um, for reasons I mentioned. And I hope that he comes to realize that this was the best way forward. That if he ever decided that he wanted to go public when would he do that? Three years from now? Seven years from now? And then what would he say, right? Uh, well, the IRS made its decision and there was nothing there, but I want to tell the world the whole story anyways, mm -hmm. right? Then then he's, he's going to pile a lot of trouble on himself. And can he keep quiet in that circumstance? Or maybe they settle and yeah. then he's bound and can't say anything. And then he has to live with the fact that he wish he wished have said something for the rest of his life. Yeah. Um, or because he is, he is an idealist, you know, deep down. I think that he is more of a realist than I am. Um, but he has a lot of idealism in him. And would he be happy for the rest of his life knowing that it didn't get out there? And sure, I'm the one that forced the issue that it be out there. But, you know, the respect that you can see in many of the comments out there on many, many, many sites is that David did the right thing. And that people are glad that he is the sun that is shining light on something that should have been known for a long time. And even though it didn't materialize in a way that he would have chosen, it was the right thing. And, you know, I get a lot of hate for being the guy who betrayed his brother and, and I'm fine with that. You know, I, I think that, uh, and if the church, you're, you're going to enjoy your bowl of porridge. That's right. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I don't think that I had a right to the, a birthright or a right to the, to telling right. David's story from the beginning. I didn't sell the right. I think he had the right along all along and I must be worse than Esau in that I stole his right to not to tell the story, but I don't believe that David had the right to not tell the story. Mm. And that's a very subtle issue, but it, I think it's a real thing here with a difference. Yeah. Um, you, you don't have the right to tell someone else. You can't tell the world something that is harming the world. Mm. Nope, no one can tell me that I can't use my conscience to, to tell the world something that I think that needs to be told. Yeah. So, so there, there's, a, there's a couple questions I wanna ask you just in, in wrapping up because I, I can anticipate, you know, I've been, I've been uh, designated the TBM whisperer. It's, it's been a, it's been a while. <laughs> this is going back a few years. Yeah. Um, but but so I, I I think about TBM true believing Mormons. If any of them have listened to what we've talked about here, I think I think first of all I, th I think there's three things that would really stand out to them. And first is this patriarchal blessing that mm -hmm. you were warned, you know, because they're going to believe. Hey, this thing was actually here. You have just admitted, Lars, that that you are under the influence of the devil. This hmm. proves it. His, the patriarch said, if he went to a divinity school, things were going to fall apart. He'd be under the influence of Satan. He did that. Look what's happened. Boom, here's our cognitive biased evidence, pure and pristine that's supporting our worldview. I, I think that's something that's out there. Although I will add a quick little detail. Yeah. I never walked back into that building ever again. And I took the long way around if I ever needed to, right? Mm. To make sure that I never set foot in that building again it didn't matter once you did it you already you know, like, <laughs> the, the evidence here is you know like but 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 what, what would the tbm say 
you're divorced, you lost your family. Even like if they were going to be really, really harsh, they would say you even lost a son Mm. as a result of your wickedness and unrighteousness. Well, I didn't lose my three daughters. They're with me half of the time and they are practically perfect in every way. And we're doing science fair projects right now with them and they're loving it. And, you know, I can let them talk for themselves, but they're very, very smart people. And they, they, they come to me with questions all the time and I give them all the resources that they need. And I have no, I have no concern now. I did when they were four that they could be brainwashed and that they would have not have the ability to think for themselves. But, you know, I I don't think that they would characterize themselves as, uh, as Mormon if they had the freedom to not characterize themselves Mm -hmm. as Mormon, but that's not my fight. I want the children to go to church with their mom every Sunday until they're 18 years old and to be fully exposed to everything that she thinks is valuable and important and her point of view. And I am creating a safe place for them where they can come to me and ask me any questions at their own pace about whatever they're concerned about. They've already asked me lots of questions about why do black people have black skin? Is it because they were cursed or what about the Lamanites? Is their black skin because they were cursed? You know, what, what really happened there? And we talk about sunlight and we talk about vitamin D and we talk about melanin and, and they get it. They understand the truth. And, but there's nothing wrong with learning how to live in a pluralistic society from parents who have opposing faith positions. Yeah. In fact, I think that strengthens them and yeah. they're all of them accelerating and excelling in school so well that everyone just last night, I was at a, a, a concert and one of their teachers saw me and came up to me and said, I just want you to know that your daughters are the most amazing daughters I've ever taught. They are just mm-hmm. amazing. And of course, they're in a, they skipped a, a year of math and they were ahead and they're performing at the top of a class. That's, you get the picture. These are very are, are, are good kids who are smart, who've got two parents who love them deeply mm-hmm. and who keep them out of the, you know, the court skirmishes that, that exist between Rebecca and myself. But they're doing well. So, I didn't lose my family because I have my kids. I did lose most uh, of my the, nuclear the, family. The, TB, the TBM is not convinced, by the way, but go, but go ahead. Oh, or, yeah. and maybe I did lose them for eternity. I, yeah, okay. right. I, there I, you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this has been very, very difficult on the rest of my family, half of which are TBMs and the other half are essentially out of the church. And, you know, it's, and that is a microcosm of what's happening with the world in general, yeah. 50% of the people out there are grateful to me for what I've done. And 50% really, really hate me for this. Yeah. And I knew it would just get more severe. It's, but it's still 50, 50, even with this, this article that just came out today, you look at the comments and, and people are grateful and people are spiteful for what I've done. I've gotten lots of hate mail. I got a couple that are really interesting. One, a guy drew a, a diagram of the inside of a temple with altars and it was really kind of interesting and graphic. And, and if you were to, I, I probably even have it here. I could read it. He says the, in the search your mind and your brothers for being taken to a room like this found by crossing the veil curtain and then forced left behind given raffinil and liquid ketamine disguised as sacrament juice. Oh, jeez! Right. So the, this guy thought, thought it'd be fun to mock up the place where I should be killed for my apostasy 
in in the temple as some kind of ritual. I mean, certainly this guy's got some mental health issues or some Mormon, I don't know what's going on in his head, but it's, it's really crazy. Some of the things that people yeah. have done, some threats, but none of the threats are like material. I don't believe anyone's mm-hmm. going to, unless they're really mentally ill and decide to drive from Utah to Minnetonka. But I, uh, well, now they know where to go. Oh, they've known. They know. I, no, yeah. I, I put yeah. my location on the videos because I wanted yeah. everyone to see the videos and say, okay, that's where the heat is. I either yeah. have to go there. I'm not going to Salt Lake. Yeah. That's the place where I need to go if I'm going to do something wrong. So Salt Lake isn't the place, like Brigham Young said. It's no. Minnetonka. Not when it comes to fighting against the Mormon twins. No, don't the go Mormon to Salt Lake. <laughs> All right. So, so the, the second thing that I think a TBM would say in questioning your your motivation for all of this is that you're just a bitter, bitter ex-Mormon that you, you know, you, you lost your, your family, your wife, the divorce, you're angry, you're blaming it all on the church. Um, and so you just want to take the church down because you're a bitter, angry apostate ex-Mormon who's given themselves over to Satan. Mm. Well, I didn't, I tell those people, I didn't make up, the $600 million transaction to go to BFG. And I didn't fabricate the cover-up story, which will be yeah. revealed probably by the Washington Post, probably a month from now, right? It took a month to get the second story out and probably take another month to get the third story out. But, you know, that cover-up will be exposed. And then people have to say, oh, did when you say, when you say up? cover-up, you're talking about like emails and memos and things like that that were internal documents that showed how EPA knew what they were doing and they were intentionally covering up is that what that is yeah the, the, yeah, the 600 million dollar payment from epa through deseret mm-hmm. management corporation to beneficial financial group to bail them out the the church through deseret news and this is what they always do rather than give a position statement themselves and subject them to to lawsuits they they have a, a third person send a letter to deseret news and have them post it usually as an opinion piece mm. about how this happened so that it's a little bit more removed. But what they said was so that it's, it's the way that they're spinning the story that for public right. opinion. And they said that, 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 that bailout had nothing to do with tithing dollars and that that bailout came, the monies came from Deseret Management Corporation, which is mm. a for-profit business, yeah. which is not true. It didn't come from there. It passed through there. It came from Enzyme Peak Advisors. And there are people who facilitated getting it from EPA into Desert Management Corporation that could then pass it down to its subsidiary. Yeah. And the people who are involved in that, there is a cover-up story there. Yeah. And uh, the Washington Post knows a lot of the details of the cover-up story, and they're going to get more and expose it all when the time comes. Yeah. And... Uh, and then the the story about the one point four million dollar billion dollars that was given for City Creek Mall, and the yeah. cover up saying that that wasn't from tithing dollars, and they're exploring that story, and they've got yeah. many leads there um, from their tip line that they have told me about. So, yeah. you know, I tell those people that it, oh, this is all just it all can be reduced. And this is the, that's what right. everyone says. It can all be reduced to the fact that you're a little angry, and so we can discredit everything you say. Well. You can live your life that way. There's nothing in the Constitution that prevents that. But I didn't fabricate these cover-ups, and yeah. they're going to come out. And the rest of the story will be determined by our, the IRS. And if they settle or they don't or they dismiss the case or whatever, at least I know I did the right thing. Yeah. And David did the right thing. Yeah. So. And, and, the, and then the, the, the third thing that I have here, we've already talked about in quite a lot of detail, is, is the money motivation for getting a percentage of what, whatever 
awarded at the end of this process. And, and you know, when Tom, Tom wanted to be on uh, this conversation like he was the first time we talked, he wasn't able to make it today, but I, I had a few exchanges with him <laughs> where he he's like Glenn I can't believe if if money was if money was part of the motivation that really just soils everything it just like makes everything suspicious so even Tom you know seeing that this was potentially that you could be making millions of dollars or that David could be making millions of dollars even if it was just five hmm. would still like really sully in his mind this whole process of going forward and and my response to him and, and to anybody is, is exactly what you just said is that doesn't mean that you're making up or that you're fabricating the facts of the case. And, and the, the more stories we have like this, that are like the sensational, Oh, he's motivated by this or that, or he's, you know, it's just ignoring. The well, you know what, Dave, here. what Dave and I talked about, I had an idea that I shared with them, uh, which was, why don't we do this? Why don't we say upfront that whatever money comes in to us after taxes and everything and the lawyers and whatever money you get, why don't we say that we will dedicate that to a 501c3 charity and that the purpose <laughs> of that charity that we create ourselves would be to help all of the small to medium-sized churches who sign a petition early on saying that we want more transparency from churches. And if that makes it harder for some churches to report, then we will create this grant program so that those churches can get the IT systems and the legal support they need so that they can be more transparent without it costing them anything. Mm. And that would help make sure that a lot of the people who could lobby against making more trans, uh, requiring churches to be more transparent, especially the big churches, wouldn't oppose it. And then everyone could say that whatever money did come to us from the whistleblower program could go to helping churches. Mm -hmm. And then that would not be something that would be easy for people to be upset about. Yeah. Right. Cause David wouldn't be getting any money. I wouldn't be getting any money. And the, the lawyers were like, you want to tie your hands now? You have no idea what life is going to be like seven sure. years from now. Yeah. You know, yeah. you might be in a, a real financial pickle and, uh, and now you're bound by some legal document and you know, you don't know what this is, how this is going to affect you. It's not right. wise to, to, to cut off your own arm that could feed your own family if you don't know what you're going to be like seven years from now, yeah. which of course is wise. So, you know, it, but we, we did discuss, I mean, I had these thoughts about how could we make sure that people didn't think that there was a financial motivation, but I mean, you try to come up with something more creative. Yeah. But I'm, well, so, I'm sorry that Tom feels that, that way. That's like asking me to, to write the Book of Mormon and be like Joseph Smith. I can't do it. Yeah, I, I can't yeah. do the, the no Nibley challenge. No one can. <laughs> How? It's impossible. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Well. Thank yeah, you for giving I, me the chance to talk a little bit about. Oh, my gosh. It was, it, was so, it was so great to talk with you and, and hear more about your background, your conditioning. I mean, the, just the fact that this is your twin brother. <laughs> and the the imp you know like if if you're looking at your life and you're saying have i done any good in the world today and at what cost mm -hmm. I, I mean the 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 cost to you of following your conscious consciousness being being true to yourself your own personal integrity it it has cost you a lot yeah it has and it's, that's it's okay cost you a lot but i think that most people get to the end of their lives 
and they say, I've got whatever X amount, you know, I've known some people in Harvard Business School who've got a plan, they've got a number, you know, what's your retirement number? And they talk about what you you know, what's your number in Wall Street, people always talk about what's your number, how many millions do you have to have before you leave Wall Street and go get a college in the woods and have a family or whatever? What's your number? It's It's a big topic. And I think that most of those people, they get to the end of their lives and they, they pat themselves on the back that they give $20 million to a particular charity before they die or whatever. Yeah. Um, or they give a lot of money to their children who by then are old enough that they don't need it and are just going to give it to their kids or whatever. Yeah. And I think that if the technology were available, I had the conversation with someone, a dear friend from business school who I revere, who is struggling with whether or not she is a mother should spend more time working or more time doing things with her family. And, and I said, I'm willing to bet you dollars to donuts that when you are 80 years old and you've got that extra 20 million, that what you will want to do is to invest in the technology that will allow your mind to go back in time and whisper to yourself, don't earn this money. Spend the time with the people that you love, mm. you know, slow down a little bit. I think everybody who's very wealthy gets to that point in their diet in their life where they wish they had spent their money on love and relationships. And I decided to spend that money now mm-hmm. um, instead of fictitiously in the future. And maybe that means that I'll have to take a couple of extra years to work before I retire. That doesn't matter. What matters is the good that we do in the world now. So it's cost me a lot. And, and, and I, just, I just, you know, like the way that you just framed that was you doing good in the world. And I, and I may have, I think I said that as well, but, but I, I really want to let you know how much I admire you for just being true to yourself, you know, and, and like do what is right. Let the consequence follow. That's something that we were conditioned a lot mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And, and so you, taking it very seriously at every step <laughs> at every step, weighing the information, doing as much as you could to be fair to your upbringing, your heritage, the church, but God, this doesn't quite add up. You weren't comfortable inside your own skin with that. That's right. And so you chose that I'm going to be true to myself. What I feel is right. And if it does good in the world, fantastic. That's, that's important too. But you've, like wanting to be a whole person you said earlier in the conversation right that um the 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 cost of doing that to it's, be the whole person is it, it it's laudable um and so i i just i don't think it's any harder than someone who has problems with gender identity trying to figure out how they fit into the world and deciding to come out and be clear to sure. the world about something that's so difficult i think a lot of people are more heroic than than i'm look i'm a privileged white male i know that and so i don't think that my my situation is any harder than <laughs> except than, the compliment lars uh, you're so nice <laughs> but, but i do want this this is important to me though yeah i would rather every one of your listeners view my life as a cautionary tale because mm-hmm. the things that I did bad, you know, were hurt myself and hurt others on the long term, right? I, so some advice to not be a Lars Nielsen. If you're <laughs> having a hard time with the cognitive dissonance, create a support system that is not Mormon before you start throwing away your Mormon support system. Mm. That is huge. Don't do that. Don't tell yourself, I will not look at information from certain sources so that I can be sure that I did the best job that ever could be done of trying to square 
the circle, put the, 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 the peg in the wrong shaped hole, you know, there is no glory in that. There is no glory in saying, I looked at every footnote of every detail of every book that's ever been written on these five topics. And I am now convinced after six years of struggling and alienating myself that I, there's not glory in that kind of thoroughness, right? Mm. So be careful how you choose to spend your time and be careful how you choose to spend your relationships. I made the decision to double down several points when I should not have made the decision to double down. And in so doing, by not building up a network outside of the Mormon church, I got to my 30s. And by the time I got 30, I alienated everyone that was part of my life because everyone that was a part of my life was Mormon. And then from 30 on, now what I'm doing is like, who, how, do, how do I say it this way? When I was at business school, I was really focused on business and I wasn't focused on my relationships with my sex, section mates, many of them who were not Mormon, because I wanted the Mormon network. I was in that double down mode. And so I was building up my Mormon network and my Mormon community and not like my business school, non-Mormon community. Yeah. But then I flipped the switch and left all of my, my family and Mormon community alone. And I hadn't built up that strong non-Mormon community professionally or personally, right? So be very careful about how you progress through this and be careful about telling other people, quote, you need to shit or get off the pot. You need to like decide whether or not you're in or out of Mormonism. Doing anything too quickly or rashly or brashly is a recipe for disaster. I did that. David did not do that. Everything he did was slower and more measured. And he's in the pain position now to a greater extent than I am because he's taken longer to go through it. But I do believe that he will get to the core same position that I am now uh, soon, so at some point, and that we'll be able to begin a reconciliation process and that we will both realize in the end that, that this was for the best. And if not, I'm wrong. And, uh, and I can live with that confidently for the rest of my life. Wow. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Lars. You know, you, you've, you've always got a place here, you know, <laughs> I appreciate serious, that. seriously, if there's, and, and, um, you know, whether it's, whether we're recording something for a podcast or you just want to call up and, and talk like, I appreciate seriously, that. seriously. Um, well, all of you infants, every single one of you was a yeah. part of my journey because it allowed me to laugh when I needed to laugh. It allowed me to get angry like like Randy sometimes yeah. when I needed to be angry. I got to relate to experiences like Tom's drinking coffee for the very first time. And like right. it just – it is a valuable service to give people a place where they can identify at a distance, cry without being seen, and laugh – at loud as loud as they need to while weeding the garden when no one's around yeah. because you have to process this difficult journey especially if you're alone and and then that's the real re that's the real truth here is that you are never as alone as you think and you are never as alone if you will just want to not be alone yeah. and and the infants give people courage and then the resources to process and come to that conclusion and, and to live your own authentic life lots of people do that but i you were a part of my story and i'm grateful for that well thank you uh, you know and and i could probably uh, almost echo word for word the caution <laughs> that, that you said you know because the the things that that i've done and i can't really speak for the others um in, infants but for me i know what i've done has come at a cost as well and and, and so that's 
probably why it's so important for me to um, to try to look on the bright side of of where I am now, um, as opposed to all of the things that maybe I've lost or uh, you know, because when when I when my inner critic really starts chattering. It goes, why did you do that? Why did you make this? Why have you been so public about, it? you know, like you weren't really sure about how you felt about this or that and you put it out there and, uh, you know, you just kind of like went for it. And now, you know, like you were talking about when you put something on the internet, it's kind of there forever. I've got 10 years of <laughs> like me doing, doing this. Why? Like why? Because it's just, it's really just because I enjoy it. And I've just, I just, I have to take that as the, okay, the, the, the joy that I get from doing it and then the consequences that come from it. Okay. I've got to, I've got to live with it and really just focus on that joy that I get from doing it. Um, and, and, and talking to people like you, Lars, r- really is part of that, that right. joy, like right. expanding my understanding that what you told me about your wife and your stillborn child and wanting that to, that, that resurrect him. Right. I like that made an impact on me that I'm going to carry with me for the rest of my life. We have to do this. We have to, we have to decide whether or not the good and the bad and the ugly of who we are is going to help someone who's got some good and bad and ugly in themselves. Yeah. And the easiest thing is to put up blinders and to not talk about things and to keep your life private. I can't remember who said it, but it might've been like either Rolf Waldo Emerson, or maybe it was, I can't, or it might've been Henry David Thoreau Mm. who said, he who hid well, lived well. Mm. And there is some truth to saying, if I don't let all of my thoughts out and all of my hurt and my feelings and wants and desires, if I just stay quiet, then people won't attack me as much. And I I will be able to live an easier life and you might live well, but if you want to live on in the lives of the next generation who are going to suffer and they're going to suffer worse than this generation did because of the things that we're doing to the planet and to our next generation, politically, everything like there is going to be more suffering in the world. Maybe not of, you know, dying in childbirth or malnutrition under five, but there will be other kinds of suffering that will increase and it will be mental and spiritual anguish. And the only way that those people can take comfort is to hear the stories and to understand how people were processing it, which means I feel I have the responsibility to tell everyone how big of an asshole I've been and how courageous and brave I've been, but how regretful and remorseful I've been. And you know, you get to take me as a mixed bag and try to improve your life. And I'm not going to sell myself as something better than I was. I'm a very average person in terms of like the overall well, wellness and goodness of a person. But what I do have is a unique story to offer. And I hope people will change their lives accordingly because you can learn from other people. Yeah. So... Well, thank you for that, Lars. And uh, I, I hope we do this again, maybe in another month or so and, and see how, <laughs> how this thing progresses. And, you know, like, I, I, I really wish the best for, for you and David and uh, a, a quick repair to that relationship. And, you know, I, I hope that happens soon. I hope so, too. I think it can. I think that it, I hope it will. We'll see. Right. Have a great day, buddy. All right. Thanks, Lars. We'll thank talk with you later.
Hi, this is Hillary, Matthew, Brian, Carol, Keith, Ashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? And one last thing that I want to say at the end of this episode. I really appreciated what Lars had to say about the role that Infants on Thrones played in his faith prices. And, I, and I've heard this from, from the start of our podcast. And you can go onto iTunes and look at the reviews. Uh, hundreds of people have said that this podcast helped them feel like they weren't alone in a time when they didn't really know where to go to talk to people about the things that were troubling them. And I, 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 want, to know, I want you to know that I really appreciate hearing that from people. I'm really glad that this podcast has played that role for people and largely because of that, I've spent the last six months in a training program to become a life coach. And I've started working with clients who are listeners to the podcast who want a little bit more than what the podcast is able to give them. To have a, a, a regular conversation on certain aspects that have been troubling them, that they, they want to be able to find more balance in their life. And it's a really rewarding thing. I really enjoy it. So if you're interested, in finding out what this life coaching thing with Glenn Osland is all about. All you have to do is send me an email at infantsonthrones at gmail.com and we'll set up a time to have a conversation. There's no charge to have this conversation. It's a, a, a free evaluation. See if we're a good fit. See if it's something that would be interesting to you or not. So if you're one of these people who's feeling alone or you're feeling trapped or you're feeling stuck and you want somebody to talk to, come talk to me. I'd be more than happy to be that person for you. So infantsonthrones at gmail.com. Send me an email. And let's talk about the things that are most important to you. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.